Now, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. You can find the passage we'll be reading on page 298, if you're using the Pew Bible, 298. Uh, our congregation's been working through the book of Judges. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you might be thinking about um, the great exploits of Gideon and Samson and things like this. But we have finished that whole part. We covered the last judge uh, and his career, uh, finished that last time. And children, can you remind me how many total judges did we learn about in this book? Anyone remember? Yes, Reuben. Very good, 12. A nice biblical number. And we finished the judges. And so now uh, we have the final five chapters of the book and some people are surprised to find that there are five chapters after we finished with the judges some people are even more surprised when they read what's in those five chapters which is highly disturbing uh, so uh, today we're just looking at chapter 17 so we're easing in to this final section and try to understand what's going on here but um, there will be some rocky uh, traveling we have to do to get through the whole five chapters at the end of this book. Well, let's give attention to God's word. This is um, Judges chapter 17. Now, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there, the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as priest. And there will end the reading of God's word. May he bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, you don't need me to tell you that the dominant news story of the week has been this terrible attack 
in Israel where Hamas fighters invaded uh, southern Israel and then uh, killed and raped and kidnapped with reckless abandon. Um, one of my friends who's in the um, uh, synagogue here, the local synagogue, Jewish congregation, uh, sent me a partial list of the victims that were under 18. Dozens and dozens of people from uh, toddler age uh, up to 18. And it appears that that was indeed part of the strategy. And we can uh, look in horror at events like that, but uh, we also notice something quite profound happening in our country, which is the inability of many to condemn this atrocity. And we've got to have nuance, and we've got to have history, and we've got to have context, and maybe things didn't happen quite like the pictures show that they happened. And it's, it's been quite a, a moment of insight when something that is morally extremely clear is treated as something of confusion and many people unwilling to condemn and sadly in many of our cities people gathering to celebrate uh, the wanton butchering of women and children and other civilians and indeed tragic and it is a reminder that without Christ, without the guidance of God's word, it is easy to become morally confused about what right and wrong are. And this can even infect uh, the way the people in the church think about things. And what we have before us in these last five uh, chapters of the book of Judges is an account of what happens when we just let people do uh, what seems right to them, what comes naturally. And even though this is a description of the people of God, th these are God's people, we see the incredible moral confusion uh, that comes out of this. And so, uh, like I said, this is going to be a, a, a difficult uh, slog through these last five chapters. Uh, but I want you to realize that not only is this sort of diagnosing the problem, it's also pointing us toward the solution, and we need to not lose sight of that because what this passage shows us is that the antidote uh, for our moral and religious confusion is to seek God through his great eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll see as we look at this passage, Lord willing. And children, if you want to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of this man, Micah, who we were introduced to. And uh, what kind of a man is he? And you draw a picture maybe of what, something that he does in this passage and be listening for what we can learn from that. Well, there is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. You see, the first thing we want to notice is that left to their own devices, even God's people descend into moral confusion. And we see this in verses 1 and two of our text. So we've come to the final section of the book. It's a major transition. Uh, I put in your outline there in the bulletin an outline of the whole book, a very simple outline. You see the first part, there was sort of a double introduction and we were introduced to this problem that Israel had been given their land and told they needed to uh, fill it and subdue it and, 
and uh, rule over it, and they were unwilling to do that. And then that led to the largest part of the book, the main body, which were the cycles of these 12 judges. And you remember, the people would turn away from God. Uh, God would send one of their neighbors to oppress them. They would cry out for help. Uh, God would send a deliverer. So that's where these famous judges come from, these deliverers that God raised up. And then the people would turn back to following God for a short time. And then the cycle would complete itself. So we saw that, and now we're in the third section, the epilogue, in which there is actually a double conclusion. So there's the story that takes place in chapters 17 and 18. We're looking at the first part of that. And then the story that happens in the last three chapters. There's two uh, events that are described here. And in, in, in effect, what the author is doing is saying, okay, let me hold a mirror up to this situation and show you what things look like on the ground amongst these people who kept turning away from their God. Uh, commentator Ralph Davis, and these um, quotations are in your bulletin as well, said, here is Israel wallowing in her own religious and moral mess. And that is a good way uh, to describe it as things are going to go down from where they are in this passage today. So in verse one, we're introduced to this man named Micah. We really don't know anything about him. He's from Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim was, as we've said, a, a, one of the leading tribes at this time. This is where Ehud blew his horn and rallied the troops um, against their enemies. This is the tribe of Deborah and Barak. And so great exploits were done in this tribe. Uh, but it tells us uh, this man Micah, uh, not one likely to be doing heroic things. He's a thief. So he says to his mother, hey, the 1,100 pieces of silver. So his mother had amassed a, a small fortune and somebody had taken it. And apparently the mother had pronounced a curse on whoever took her silver and Micah, um, thief though he was, apparently was afraid of the curse because it says that he comes to his mom and says, hey, you know, that money that you put a curse on the thief, well, I took it. And so uh, you just see the, 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 the moral confusion, right? So I stole from my own mother, then because mom cursed the thief, I give it back. And then what's the mother's response? This is great, you're blessed. So she instantly turns the curse into a blessing. Um, there doesn't seem like there's really true accountability or reckoning with this here. Now he's blessed. Now take the silver I have dedicated and I want to give it to you to make into an idol. And uh, all the while, as commentator Barry Webb said, the, the scene is farcical and the tragedy of it all is that neither Micah nor his mother give any indication of knowing that what they are doing is wrong. And uh, this is one of the interesting things about these last five chapters. The narrator plays it very straight. He's just telling you what's happening and there's hardly any editorializing at all. Though uh, I'm gonna argue there's, there's a plenty significant way in which he, he indicates this is not what should be happening. But he just describes what's going on. He's showing people what happens when you do it your own way. And this can be very effective. I, there was an example of this that actually happened in the US Senate a couple of weeks back. It turns out the Senate does not have an official dress code. It's just sort of an unwritten rule. 
And so one of the new senators who likes to go around in hooded sweatshirts and gym shorts uh, was coming, at least coming to the edge of the floor and making votes from the doorway and stuff like this. And the president, uh, the, the majority leader in the Senate, was prepared to relax the unwritten dress code. So amazingly, there was a unanimous vote to impose a new dress code. Like that states specifically, you've got to wear pants, uh, trousers, if you will, right? Uh, like we needed to say that. But it's, it's a great example of what happens. Okay, if you want to see the weakness of the current policy, just show what happens when we implement it fully. And, and so what happens? Everybody agrees, okay, we need to change this. And that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, without having to make a lot of editorial comments, let me just show you, the author is saying, what happens when people go their own way and try to do it uh, according to what seems right to them. And this is, in fact, what you get. And it's a helpful reminder to us that if a society turns away from God's word, it will descend into a type of moral confusion. We see evidence of that all around us, but also in our own families and in the church itself, if we turn away from a guide uh, to what is right and what is good and we just do what feels right to us, we will descend into moral confusion. So left to yourself, even, even the people in the church are going to descend into a profound moral confusion. But secondly, we also see here that we're, we're particularly bad when it comes to worship. Right, so following your instincts when it comes to worship seems to be especially bad. So in, we see this in verses 3 to 5. Uh, Micah, at the instigation of his mother, takes a portion of the silver. The commentators don't know what to make of this. So she dedicated all 1,100 pieces to the Lord, but she only gives him 200 pieces to make into an idol. So what happens to the other 900? Maybe uh, she steals back from the Lord. Maybe this is to uh, keep this whole thing going in perpetuity. We don't know, it doesn't actually tell us. But we do know the end result is making a silver image with which to worship, worship God. So just in case there's any confusion about this, I put Deuteronomy 27 verse 15 into your outline where God says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. So there's absolutely no ambiguity. This is all throughout the scripture. You are not to make uh, images that you then worship, even if you're worshiping the true God through these images. And so Micah takes these things in verse 5 and adds them to his shrine. One commentator says he adds to his collection of religious tinker toys. So he has an ephod, that's something you use to discern God's will, supposedly, and he's got a bunch of different things. My translation calls it a shrine. In the original language, it's literally house of gods. He has created for himself his own worship center uh, that he is going to uh, use And above all uh, that, in the second half of verse 5, he takes one of his sons, right, not a priest, but takes his son and makes him a priest so that he has uh, religious leadership for his uh, do-it-yourself religious center. And uh, it it's perhaps suggests to us that nowhere is, is moral confusion more pronounced 
than when it comes to worshiping God. Uh, you remember Jesus met with a woman in Samaria at a well. And the woman was deeply confused, both morally and religiously. She had had uh, five different husbands, and um, she was very confused about worship as well. And Jesus confronted her, and he said to her in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That is a helpful guide, that we need the Holy Spirit to enable us to worship God with sincere hearts and genuine love for God. Uh, but we also need uh, truth. We need God's word to help us worship God in a way in which God wants to be worshiped. And, uh, and that is a very effective critique of the church in our country today because our tendency is to think that we worship God according to what we feel like is right or what we want to do. And we rarely even ask the question, what does God want us to do? What would God like to have done in worship? And we are quite enthusiastic about anyone who's asking that question. Even if they answer it slightly differently than we might answer it, at least we're asking the right question. What does God want in worship? God said in Deuteronomy 12, Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And that place in Deuteronomy is specifically talking about worship. When they come amongst these foreign people, don't just look around and do what everyone else is doing. Do what I tell you to do. It's important to God. And our tendency is not to do it right uh, Carl Truman wrote an article that was in World Magazine a couple of weeks ago, an editorial called Turning Worship into a Clown Show, uh, because he was writing there about the pastors of Saddleback Church, so that's uh, Rick Warren's former church, one of the largest churches in the country that boasts around 32,000 attendees per week, and uh, the pastors had started the service dressed up as characters from the Toy Story uh, franchise, and uh, this is this is the impulse, right? That we we need to do things to get people in, and um, and that becomes an end in itself. Unless we think that this is just reserved for people in California, uh, it's happening much closer to home. I have friends. It's it's sort of a, a somewhat masochistic hobby, but he likes to send videos of uh, crazy things he sees happening. And one of the local churches, one of the larger churches in our community this summer did a series on, I think it was called Your Playlist. And so it was secular music that, that would make the basis for sermons. And the one particular one that I saw, uh, it was a song called Bad Habits by Ed Sheeran. Uh, I looked up the music video, Ed Sheeran's flying around like a vampire. I, I, so so the, the praise band came on, played Bad Habits, and then the pastor went to preach a sermon exegeting the song Bad Habits. That was right here in, in Bloomington. And, and the point isn't that we should say, well, look at how ridiculous this is. It's just that this is, uh, this is an easy one to get wrong. If we rely on our instincts, see what, what's happened is that we're, we're adrenaline junkies 
And so we have to keep pushing the envelope. We have to do new, edgy, weird things so that we'll all continue to get an adrenaline rush and we'll bring people in from the outside. And it's totally missing the point of worship. That's what, uh, that's what Carl Truman's whole article was about. Like, uh, what, are, what is even the point of worship that we're dressing up like Toy Story characters and making jokes and things like that? Well, it's easy to critique this. The point for you is, how am I also guilty of this? How do I come into worship with my whole agenda, my list? What am I getting out of this? What's got to happen for me to be happy? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to address this issue? Who's going to do that? And the whole focus is on ourself, and it's not on God. And that's the fundamental problem, that um, the people in this story uh, think that they can worship God however they want, they can violate his law, that God seems to somehow owe them something. Their focus isn't on how can I please God and have fellowship with him. So your instincts with regard to worship are particularly bad. And sadly, thirdly, sometimes the greatest threats to the church are the people in leadership themselves. And we see this in verses seven to 12. So in verse seven uh, to nine, we're introduced to another new character. And this character will uh, figure prominently in chapter 18, along with Micah, a young man from Bethlehem uh, who was a Levite. Uh, so that means that he was set aside to do work uh, in, the, uh, in the tabernacle affiliated with the worship of God. And he, he leaves Bethlehem and he's wandering around looking for a place to stay. And he happens to come to Micah's house. Uh, one of the commentators refers to this Levite as a, a wandering opportunist who's just looking uh, for a job in essence. And uh, Micah must realize that his son uh, really isn't supposed to be uh, a, a priest. And so that maybe he can sort of approximate a better arrangement here if he gets this Levite guy who's really supposed to be a religious leader of sorts and make him be his, uh, his priest. So in verse 10 to 12, you have this little negotiation, right? I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your food and your housing and you come be my priest and you can mess with all these idols that I have made and you can serve my family and the priest says all right sounds good so it sort of ends you're like hey everything's great right it's all great but that's not what you're supposed to think you're supposed to be thinking what a mess this is a mess. The Levite, at least he should know better than this. He's been trained. The Levites were to be sprinkled throughout Israel, and their job was to teach the people the right way to serve God. Furthermore, God had said very specifically who could be a priest and actually offer sacrifices, and those had to be the sons of Aaron. I put a cross-reference from Exodus 28 uh, in your outline there. Now take Aaron, this is God saying, your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that, they, that he may minister to me as priests. And that was the priestly line that was started. So nobody, you couldn't just grab a guy and say, hey, you're a Levite, I can make you a priest. But this Levite should have known that. He, he, he certainly knew that. And it was his responsibility to teach people like Micah. No, Micah, you're confused here. Let me show you how this is really supposed to be done. There's a tabernacle in Shiloh. We'll read about that next week. It's, it's actually not that far. And that's where we're supposed to go and worship. 
And you can't just make church in your house and stay home in your pajamas like you want to and have me be your priest. But no, the Levite doesn't do that. He doesn't fulfill the role. And this is really an indictment on the leadership in the church. And it's a reminder that oftentimes uh, it is the leadership that is the main problem. Another video I received uh, just in the last couple of weeks. And there the pastor is wearing pink and encouraging everyone to come to church wearing pink. Now that in itself is enough of a problem right there. But on top of that, the reason is because we are going to look at the Barbie movie from the lens of scripture. So the focus is on the Barbie movie. Again, who's pushing this? It's the leadership that's pushing this. And uh, people just kind of go along. And you can see many examples of how this kind of thing happens. And uh, we're ha we have a great membership class going on over in the more room in the mornings. There's 20 to 25 people involved. And they have questions, and they have, uh, they have comments, and, they, and they're doing a great job studying this. But at the end of the day, when it comes to deciding if you want to join a church, there are all these theological questions and, uh, and scriptural questions. What do you people believe? How do you act? Those are important to get answered. But I think at the end of the day, one of the most important questions is, am I willing to put myself, my family, under the oversight of these particular leaders, these elders? And I am so thankful for the leadership in this congregation. I have entrusted myself and my family to these men, and they are trustworthy. They are mature and godly men. And that is the greatest strength of this congregation, without a doubt. And we should give thanks to God for that because there are so many pitfalls everywhere in terms of you, you can be too authoritarian, uh, you can be bullies, you can be too hands-off. It, it takes a lot of wisdom to know how to lead a congregation. And it's not done well very often. And so I'm very thankful for the men we have here. But this passage reminds us oftentimes this is the, 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 the greatest danger to the church is what happens through the leadership. Well, fourthly, we see here that seeking God's blessing without seeking God himself is a dead end. So in verse 13, we actually get a window on Micah's motivation for all this. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. So, so this is very fascinating. He believes in God. Uh, he desires God's blessing. These are, these are good things. But what's his approach? His approach is to do whatever he thinks is right to get God uh, in, uh, sort of to get himself in God's good graces and to get God's blessing. He's not actually motivated by a desire to please God or else he would find out the way God wanted it to be done and do it that way. No, he, what he's trying to do is to manipulate God into doing his own will. And so I'm going to quote a couple of the commentators on this. Tim Keller said, the purpose of his religious efforts is to get access to God 
so that he can get God to do what he wants. In contrast, the goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so that he can get you to do what he wants. He's turned this on its head. Or Barry Webb says, Judges 17 is full of religious words, objects, activities, and persons, but none of it has been governed by respect for God's law or a desire to honor him as an end in itself. Rather, this has all been about people using religion to serve their own interests. And this is the great problem we see here. It's, it's not idolatry in the sense of worshiping a foreign god. It's idolatry in terms of trying to manipulate your god, the true god in this case, uh, by doing it your own way and getting God to do what you want for your own gain. And the great irony here is that Micah's name means in the original language, who is like Yahweh? Right, a rhetorical question meaning no one. And one of the commentators sort of uh, humorously says, it seems like in this story, uh, the question is who is like Yahweh? No one, no one in this story is like Yahweh. Certainly not Micah, the one who's named in such a way. Because one who loves God would say, as we're going to sing in just a moment from Psalm 119, verse 57, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. You know what, what does that mean when you say that God is your portion? That is, God is your greatest good. God is the source of your hopes and your aspirations. He is the greatest gift that you have in life. He is the joy in your life. And the way that's manifested then is that you keep his word. You live a life of gratitude. You love him and you love others for his sake. And none of these things are happening in this passage uh, that we're reading about. You know, the reason why God very specifically forbids making an image to worship him is that it always leads to picking one aspect of God's character and elevating it above all the others. So in the Old Testament, right, the Israelites made a calf. And we, you know, we don't, that, we don't get that. But, but a calf is an image of strength and power. Uh, these animals that became beasts of burden for them. So they, were, they weren't worshiping another god. They were worshiping their god. They just wanted to do it by means of something they could see. But you see, like they emphasize one aspect of God and they de-emphasize other aspects of God. And, and that's the kind of idolatry that we're often more guilty of. Because see, if we do it that way, we can sort of create for ourselves a God who's more of this than that according to our own tastes, and what's it all about? It's all about us having a God that pleases us and does what we want, not us submitting ourselves to the true God. And children, you might think about this, and I, I don't know what all you pray about, but if you come before God and all you ever pray about is help me on my test, uh, help me win my basketball game, help me do well on my piano recital, and that's it, it starts to look like our main focus is what can God do for me? That's, that's why I'm interested in God. What, what, what can God do for me? And it's okay to pray about those things, but God wants your heart. 
And the real focus of worship is us connecting with God and loving God for God's sake, not for the things that he can do for me. And this was Micah's problem. This is what he says. This is all great. He's done all these things contrary to God's word, but he says, this is great. Now God will be pleased with me. He just hopes that he can manipulate God into doing good things for him. He doesn't want a relationship with God. He doesn't love God for who God is. And that's why we say seeking God's blessing without seeking God is a dead end. And we'll see next week just how much of a dead end this is for Micah. So then finally, we see here that the antidote for your confusion is to seek God through his great king. So what is our hope? Verse six suggests the answer. And there is the closest thing to an editorial comment that the author makes. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not much, but it tells us all we need to know about these last five chapters. This is what happens when there's no king and every person just does what he or she make, thinks makes sense to them. And this, this is repeated four times in these last five chapters to emphasize it. This is trying to push us to see. We've tried 12 generations of judges. There have been some high points. There have been some good things that have happened. But 12 generations of judges who came and went, that was not the solution. We're going to see what happens if we just let you do it on your own. We're going to see that does not work at all. It doesn't work at all. What's needed is a king. And the implication here is not just any king, but a king who would look at this confusion and say, no, that's not how you do it. You don't make your son a priest you don't grab a guy off the street and make him priest. You don't take silver and make your own idols. This is not how it's done. You need a king who will be there for you, who is righteous and will stop the moral confusion and will bring clarity. And we have that king in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is looking forward to that need and how that need is met in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true antidote for moral confusion in worship and in life and in every other way. And back to this conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. He said, you must worship God in spirit and in truth. But he also tells the woman in John 4 verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. That's really interesting, isn't it? How are we going to get people who do this in the right spirit according to the truth of God? God himself is going to have to raise up people to worship him in the right way. But this tells us that he is going to do that. And he's going to do that through his son who comes into the world worshiping God perfectly, laying down his life in place of his people, rising from the dead, and then ascending to heaven, where he is able to continue to help his people, bring, bring to them the word of God and the clarity that we need to understand what's morally right, but also how we are to worship God. 
Left to yourself, your instincts are going to be confused and it's going to lead you to a dead end. But Christ comes to show you the way and to rescue you from doing it your own way. So you don't have to. You can trust in him and through him break through the confusion and worship the Lord in a way that truly pleases him. So the antidote to confusion in life and in worship is to seek God through his great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's seek him now in prayer as we give him thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the variety of your word. On the surface, this is just a strange story about one man's family uh, and some weird decisions that he makes. And yet we realize that this is a way for you to uh, give us a little mirror that shows us what happens when there is no king, there is no godly, righteous leader to show us and to lead us according to the truth. And we try to make it up on our own. And we pray, Lord, to the extent that we're guilty of doing this, that you would forgive us and, uh, and cleanse us. And we pray that through Jesus, you would help us to understand what it is you really want and how we can, by his grace, seek you and not just your blessing. Lord, we pray that we would be people who genuinely love you, uh, not just wanting things from you, but we love you for who you are. And we pray you would be pleased to work in our lives. We pray if uh, there are any here who do not know you through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw us to yourself and encourage our hearts uh, that we might have the clarity we need through the Savior. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. And now we'll sing back our praise to the Lord from Psalm, Psalm 119, Selection H. I read uh, the first verse of this portion of the psalm there in the sermon. My portion is the Lord himself. I'll keep your words. My vow will be that this is the heart of the person who loves God himself and then the desire is that we would keep his word, that we would please him living according to his truth. So let's stand, we'll sing Psalm 119H.